Well, uh, nice to be with you again today. And uh, thank you, Graham, for the invitation to be here. Uh, it's also nice for my wife, Elaine, to be with me. It's not often that that happens. I think this is the first Sunday, oh, maybe in something like 23 years that we haven't had any children at home. So uh, she was free to come today. So uh, I'd like to speak to you from the book of Ruth uh, this morning, and I'd like to look at the first six verses of the book of Ruth. So Ruth chapter one, and I'll read from verse one through, well, through to the end of verse five, and, and then uh, sometime again we'll pick up at verse six. <clears throat> In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Mahlon and Kylon. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and they lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about 10 years, both Mahlon and Kylon also died. And Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. Well, just uh, this far, and uh, let's pray for a minute and ask the Lord to help us as we think about uh, what's in these uh, five verses. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to study your word freely. And we pray that as we come to this story that on one hand is full of tragedy and sadness and yet is uh, filled with hope and uh, the prospect of, of future joy. We pray that you'll help us and we pray that ultimately you will be our teacher. We pray that we'll hear more than just the drone of a speaker's voice, but somehow graciously and humbly you will come and minister to our weary hearts and stir us, oh stir us, we know not how. And we pray this in our Saviour's name. Amen. Well, Ruth, of course, takes her place alongside uh, women in the Bible like Sarah and Hannah, Deborah and Esther. In the New Testament, you've got uh, individuals like Dorcas, uh, the seamstress, and Priscilla, and then, of course, Phoebe, who served the church at Rome, and various other characters um, in the New Testament, female uh, characters. We could, uh, we could think of others, Eunice and Lois, and, uh, who, who, of course, had such a huge influence on Timothy. But despite the fact that the Bible is full of the story of, uh, stories of, of, of great women of faith. Only two of the books in the Bible are mentioned or named after women, which is really interesting. And the two books that are named after women in the Bible are 
of course, the book of Esther and the book of Ruth. These two books are very different in, in many respects and similar in other respects. It, it, it would be an interesting exercise to read both of these books and to look at the differences in the stories and also then to read them a second time and look at the similarities that exist between the two books. So by way of differences, Esther is the story of a Jew or Jewess who married a Gentile uh, a Gentile king. Ruth is the story of a Gentile Moabite who actually married a Jew. In Esther, the book of Esther, the name God is never ever mentioned. But in the book of Ruth, the name of God is mentioned no less than 25 times. So differences which are really interesting. But enough about Esther. Uh, we've come to look at Ruth, and so that's where we'll focus this morning. And the book of Ruth, of course, is a favorite for many, many Christians. It's a book that is full of all kinds of uh, truths that are exciting and uh, heartwarming just by way of introduction, I'll mention a few of them. Ruth is a story that is filled with grace. Because Ruth, as I said, was a Moabite. She wasn't one of the covenant people of God. Uh, her people worshipped gods that were impotent, gods that could not hear and could not see. And uh, Ruth's second husband was a man called Boaz. And he was the son of a prostitute who lived in Jericho by the name of Rahab. And you can pick that up in Matthew chapter 1, verse 5. So Boaz was Rahab's son, a prostitute who lived in Jericho. Her son married uh, Ruth, who was a Moabite who had come to live in Israel. Uh, Rahab, of course, had given her heart to God. And as a result, her life was saved when the city was overrun by the Israelites. And Ruth was a Moabite who married Rahab's son, and together they had a son called Obed, who in turn had a son called Jesse, who in turn had a son called David. And from David's family tree uh, eventually came the savior of the world. So Ruth is a story of grace. These two women, Rahab and Ruth, are swept into the family tree of Christ. And one day, the saviour of the world will come from their descendants. It's a story of extravagant grace. God goes in search of this girl. It would appear and brings her to, uh, back to Bethlehem and right into the family tree of uh, the saviour. So Ruth is a story of grace. It's also, I think, a story of, about providence. Ruth's story shows how God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. It's a story for people who wonder where God is when there's no prophets to speak on his behalf. It's a book which reminds us that sometimes God's plan for our lives can take us through some dark valleys and his goodness is hard to trace and his plan is hard to understand. Yet as we watch Ruth being brought to the promised land where she marries Boaz and takes her place in the genealogy of the Lord Jesus, we are reminded that in the dark valleys of life, God's presence and plans are just as real as they are at any other time. It's a book which reminds us that when we reach the end of our tether, God is at the other end 
and he never has any intention ever of letting go. In fact, the book of Ruth goes as far as to show that even when we have distanced distanced ourselves from God because Naomi had she had left the promised land with her husband even when we have distanced ourselves ourselves from God God will still be at work plotting our restoration and planning our future glory so Ruth is a story of providence it's also a story of faith it's the story of a of, of a, a young Moabite who married into a family that worshipped Yahweh, the God of Israel. And she turned her back on her pagan idols and her pagan gods, and she resolved to love this God that her, her in-laws loved and served. She lost her husband, her best friend, it would appear, Orpah, Orpah returned to uh, their homeland, but Ruth stayed the course. And she arrived in Bethlehem, a rank outsider. And there must have been days when she felt like going back to her parents and back to her old gods in Moab. But she stayed despite the poverty that she and Naomi faced and despite the harassment that she experienced in the fields around Bethlehem. And she came to love the Lord. And she came uh, and the Lord loved her. And... Uh, the Lord's hand was upon this young woman of amazing faith. And we'll see how that story develops in the weeks to come. And finally, then, Ruth is also the story, a, story, a love story. Ruth is one of the great love stories of the Bible. A young Moabite girl, uh, fresh into the family of faith, is found by God and then led to a man of God who would love her and treasure her and with whom she could enjoy the kind of oneness and partnership that God intended a married couple to enjoy and uh, to find in each other. And that's the story of Ruth as she meets Boaz and they set up home together and uh, they have a son together. And that son, of course, becomes such a significant player in the family tree of Jesus. I don't know how the magazines uh, would have headlined the story of of Ruth perhaps young woman finds love and happiness on the heels of tragedy maybe something like a sad story with a happy ending but whatever the headline would have been the fact remains Ruth found a husband that was worth finding when she found Boaz and there's hope in this story for those who long to meet someone and share their lives with someone and there is a reminder that if you find a partner like either Boaz or Ruth, you will have found a treasure that is worth waiting for. Well, all of that by way of introduction. Let me tell you a little bit about the, the historical details surrounding Ruth. Uh, according to chapter 1, verse 1, which we've read, the story took place during the period of the judges. Now, that was a 400-year period between their initial settling into life in Canaan after they led, left Egypt and wandered through the wilderness, there was a period where they were ruled over by judges. So a 400-year period uh, after they had settled in the land of Canaan and before they uh, anointed or appointed their first king. So they were ruled over by these um, judges. 
roughly from about 1400 BC to about 1000 BC. So just to put it in its historical context. The story of Ruth must have taken place fairly early on in the period of the judges because Boaz uh, is, was Rahab's son. And of course, Rahab was saved when the Israelites overran Jericho. And you'll remember that story. So, so the story of Ruth must have taken place fairly early on in the period of the judges, uh, sometime after the fall of Jericho. It seems that a famine struck uh, Bethlehem, and that's uh, we're introduced to the famine in the early verses of the book of Ruth. So um, the only famine that we read of that corresponds in the book of Judges actually takes place during the reign of Gideon, or uh, just before the reign of Gideon, Gideon, when the Midianites were crossing over, uh, you'll remember they were crossing over the Jordan and just wreaking absolute havoc in Israel, ravaging, stealing, pillaging, raping, and uh, the Lord raised up Gideon to defend the Israelites. And there is at least a possibility that the story of Ruth was set in that particular period. The truth is, uh, I'm not 100% sure when exactly Ruth took place, but at some point during the period of the judges, and it seems that around that time would fit the context fairly well. Well, uh, I have three things I want to share with you from these five verses. I want you to, uh, I don't know I'm sh if you saw the wedding, what is it, or the movie, two weddings or three weddings and a funeral or whatever it was. Well, this is two families, a famine and three funerals. That's my outline. So two families, a famine and three funerals. So let's look at the two families. First of all, let's think a little bit about Elimelech and his parents. Because that's where the story of Ruth begins. It begins with uh, Elimelech, Ruth's father-in-law. And we don't know much about him other than what we are told here. We're not told much about Elimelech elsewhere in Scripture. We do know that from this passage of Scripture that he was from Bethlehem. Now, Bethlehem couldn't have been a very big place. Uh, we do know that it was on the outskirts of Jerusalem, uh, several miles from Jerusalem, but not far from Jerusalem. And in the future, of course, uh, David would capture Jerusalem from pagan occupation and it would become the nerve center of Israel. But at this point uh, in, in history, Jerusalem is still under pagan control. So we know that she, he is from Bethlehem. We also know that he was an Ephrathite. It's difficult to know what that means. Most seem to think that it's a reference to the fact that he was a well he was part of a well-established family in Bethlehem. Some have suggested it was like the local aristocracy. So they are the folks that had the nice house on the hill with the well-stocked vegetable gardens and the automatic gates in, in today's terms. So he was an Ephrathite. It wasn't just any Joe Bloggs that came from Bethlehem. He actually was a well-to-do individual. Beyond that, we're not told a great deal about Elimelech or his family. But we do know that his name means, my God is king. My God is king. Now, names are important at the best of times. Um, I was reading some time ago that uh, children with uh, unusual names uh, that are, they can find those names to be hard to live with. 
And often those names can bring out the worst in children. I, I find that a really interesting observation. Um, Elimelech means my God is, is king. And names were important, not, are, are important now. That's why some of us took so long to choose the name of our children. Um, but names were much more important in, in Bible times. And I suspect that Elimelech's parents thought long and hard about the name that they were going to give their son. They wanted to give their name a son that would say something about what they believed. And they believed that their God was king. They had crowned this God as king of their own lives. And they longed that this God would be the king of their son's life. And uh, that he would surrender his heart and life to this God and walk in the ways of this God. That was their prayer for their son, Elimelech, when he was born. Now, at the time when Elimelech was born, things weren't great in, in Israel. Judges 21, 25 says there was no king in Israel and everyone was, was doing what was right in their own eyes. It seems that people did whatever they wanted to do. They lived as they pleased. They were a law unto themselves at this particular juncture in history. But here is a family uh, that said, we will not make up our own rules as we go along. Our God is king and we'll submit to his guidelines. And if he is our king, we'll submit to his laws and we'll walk in his ways. So you see the statement that this family want to make? And that's all the more interesting when you think about the period of the judges. God is our king. That was the statement that they made. Uh, if, if Elimelech's name is anything to go by, then he grew up in a, in a home and in a family where his parents were committed to the Lord. And it's a great thing, I think, to have Christian parents. Uh, I've told you my story, I'm sure, a million times. I, I grew up a little boy on the east coast of Scotland, a fairly dysfunctional, broken family. But my father was converted when I was about 12, and it transformed our family because our whole family started to go in a completely different direction. And, uh, and it's a huge thing, isn't it, to, to, to have the privilege of growing up in a Christian environment. And that's what Elimelech had. Uh, he had parents who gave him this name who, want, and who wanted to make a great statement. Some of us are parents. Um, and as our children listen to us, I suppose it's a challenge, isn't it? Do they sense that our deepest and greatest desire for them is that God would become their king and that they would make God their king? Is that our do they sense that that's our deepest desire for them? That we serve him ourselves and above anything else and above everything else, that's our passion for them. Well, here's the second thing then about uh, two families, not only Elimelech and his parents, let's think about Elimelech and his wife then, Naomi. So this is a new family unit that has been formed and uh, we don't know how they ended up together. We're not told about the circumstances of their meeting or getting married. Um, these were days, of course, when parents were involved in helping children set up their uh, life's partner or arrange their marriage to their future partner. Uh, it would appear that dads in particular had a role to play uh, as he tried to uh, set up a marriage for his daughter and for his sons. 
I wish that I could have that kind of involvement in choosing a future partner for my own children, but I, I doubt if any of them will let me in any way interfere uh, in any capacity whatsoever. So I'll just have to give up on that. But here's the crucial thing about Elimelech and Naomi. Both of them belong to the covenant community. Both of them were descendants of, of Abraham. They were part of a group of people who had come from Egypt with Moses and Joshua and settled in the land of promise. And when Elimelech married, he married someone who to some extent shared his heart for God when he married Naomi. He didn't go out and just marry some pagan uh, who didn't share his heart for God, whose life wasn't going in the same direction as his. He found somebody who shared his heart for God. Naomi was the name of the woman he married, and her name means pleasant or delightful or maybe even sweet. Uh, of course, there's a play on that a little bit later in the story, which we'll pick up on. But uh, just to note at this point that Naomi means pleasant or delightful. And, and I guess you could call your child pleasant or delightful. Whether they actually turn out pleasant or, or delightful is, a, is another story. Jonathan Edwards told a young man who came to ask for one of his daughter's hands in marriage, he said, you can't have her. And the young man said, why can't I have her? She's a Christian, isn't she? Uh, and and uh, Jonathan Edwards says, well, she's not worthy of you. And uh, the young man pressed Edwards, why can't I marry her? She's one of the Lord's people, isn't she? And uh, Edwards says, well, the grace of God can live with people that you will never be able to live with. Who knows uh, why her parents gave her this name? But there is an indication in the story that the, her name did reflect her character. There is a sweetness about Naomi, as, and we'll see that as the story unfolds. We'll see her pleasantness as she comes to terms with the fact that God is not against her. And that's a process. As she comes to term, terms with the loss of her husband and the loss of her two sons, and she has this sense that God has abandoned her. But as she begins to understand God hasn't abandoned her, and God hasn't forgotten her, and God is still very much for her, and God is with her, we'll begin to see something of her sweetness of character unfolding. Uh, despite having... Uh, We'll see her also encouraging Ruth, incidentally, when we get to Bethlehem. We'll see her encouraging Ruth that the Lord is with them and the Lord is, 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 is favor is resting upon Ruth in particular. So we'll see something of Naomi's sweetness coming out. But despite marrying Naomi and despite having parents who gave a name, uh, gave him a name that made a statement about what they believed, the indications are that Elimelech didn't follow in the footsteps of his parents. He gave his boys Canaanite names, not Hebrew names, not Israeli names, but Canaanite names. Mahlon means sickly and Kailon means pining. Now, I know that we could read too much into that and we need to be careful. But in choosing a name for his son, he certainly didn't make the statement that his own parents made when they gave him a name. A different world altogether. And the other indicator that Elimelech, uh, Elimelech's walk with the Lord was not what it could have been is the fact that he walked away from his life among the Lord's people in the promised land. He left Bethlehem 
And he went to live with the pagans, the descendants of Lot, who were worshipping the god Chemosh. Went to live with them, left Israel, left Palestine, left the promised land, went to live with the Moabites, who worshipped a God who demanded human sacrifices. He went to live with them. Now, I realize that times were hard, and I know that a famine had struck Bethlehem, and a famine must be a difficult thing to endure. And thankfully, we haven't lived through a famine, at least most of us. I realize that the plains of Moab were fertile and held out the prospect of grain, food, I don't think it's wrong to move from one country to another. I don't even think it's wrong to move uh, from one country to another for financial reasons. People move uh, from city to city uh, for all kinds of reasons, and some of them work, and I don't think any of that is wrong. But Elimelech wasn't moving from Moodysburn to Aberdeen. Elimelech was moving away from the promised land. And it's different, fundamentally different. Now, I realize that he's not the first person to have done this, and you could think of several examples of people who left the promised land. You could think of Abraham, who went down into Egypt during a time of uh, difficulty and famine. But that didn't exactly go well, did it? As he lied about the identity of his wife and had to return with his tail between his legs. You could think about Jacob. He too left the promised land and went down uh, to live with his son. But that didn't end well either as they became oppressed and enslaved. And eventually God had to send Moses to miraculously de deliver them. So in the story of the Bible, when people leave the promised land, it's never a very positive thing. It's usually a fairly negative experience. And here's Elimelech and he left the promised land and went to live with the Moabites. Elimelech's leaving his life with God's people. He's going to mix with people that worship idols and make all kinds of unbelievable sacrifices to these idols. So we ask the question, where was he going to find fellowship amongst the Moabites? People that he could worship with. They didn't worship Yahweh. So where was he going to find people that he could worship with? And what about his sons? Where were they going to find wives that they could spend the rest of their lives with that shared their hearts and worshiped Yahweh and obeyed Yahweh and went, wanted to walk in the ways of Yahweh? If he goes to live with these pagans, where will, where will his two boys find future wives? No, Elimelech had many privileges. Parents who made a statement in the name that they gave him. A life amongst God's people in the promised land. A wife whose name meant sweet and whose character gives all the evidence of being a sweet and pleasant person. He had all kinds of privileges. But he seemed to quietly walk away from it all. Maybe he was better off financially. But he and his family must have paid the price spiritually. And I just want to ask the question, do you think it was worth it? The spiritual well-being of his family was on the line. The grass seemed greener in Moab, but when he got there, it probably wasn't as green as he thought it would be. It's easy, isn't it, to slip out of the picture. Quietly slip away from the life that you have amongst the Lord's people. No, no longer as regular at, 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 at worship as, as you used to be, work commitments, family commitments, all cl clamoring for your time. But what about things like fellowship and what about things like family? 
Well, that was uh, the two families. We had Elimelech and his parents. And we don't know much about them, but they made a great statement in the name that they gave him. And then we've got Elimelech and his wife, at Naomi. Well, let's think about the famine then. Just a couple of things about that. So first of all, a crisis comes to Bethlehem. I've already said that the final verse of the book of Judges says that there was no king in Israel and everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. They were ignoring the guidelines that God had given through Moses in the books of the, old, of the Pentateuch or of the law. People were living by their own rules, making up their own rules as they went along. And, and they were reaping the consequences for ignoring the Lord. Leviticus chapter 26 verses 19 to 20 makes it absolutely clear. God makes it absolute, absolutely clear what would happen if they ignored his guidelines. And everything God said came true. The sky became bronze. The ground became as hard as iron. The rain stopped falling and God sent a drought. And there was a famine in the land that ought to have flowed with milk and honey because they were doing what was right in their own eyes and they were experiencing the judgment of God. Bethlehem means house of bread, but now it has become the house without bread because of their disobedience. And people were finding it difficult, and I don't want to minimize that. Elimelech decided that he would uproot his family and move to Moab. Moab was a fertile plateau east of the River Jordan. If you look at a map of the, of the Holy Land at some point, you'll see east of the Jordan is where Moab was. And I don't want to be unkind to Elimelech. I've already made the point that I don't think there's anything wrong with moving country. But again, he wasn't moving country. He was moving from the promised land. He was leaving God's people and his life with them. You say, well, what did you expect him to do? Well, couldn't he have done what his neighbors did? Couldn't he have weathered the storm? He doesn't seem to have been down to his last penny when he left Bethlehem. Because when Naomi eventually returns to Bethlehem, she says to the women, call me, don't call me sweet. Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, which means bitter. Why? Why would we want to call you bitter? Because I went out full, she says, and I came back empty. Now, that may have been a reference to the fact that she had a husband and two sons when she left, and now when she returns, she's got neither. But it could also indicate that they weren't exactly poverty-stricken. They weren't down to their last shilling. Belonging to a well-established family like the Ephrathites, left them better place to see out this famine than most of the other families in Judah. This was a strong, well-established, well-connected family. Food could have been secured from somewhere, surely. If he believed in the meaning of his own name, if God really was king, couldn't he have trusted God to have supplied his need when hard times came, did he have to sacrifice his life with God's people and go off and live with pagans just because times were hard? Now, I know that life gets difficult from time to time, and I know that sometimes it's hard to make ends meet, and I know that sometimes life throws all kinds of things at us that can be difficult to bear. 
But in our struggle, I just ask you this question, in our struggle to make ends meet and to work our way through the difficulties that we face, is it the right thing to walk away from our lives with God's people and maybe even our life with God? Can't we hang in there and trust God to see us through? Is it the right thing to walk away? Say, well, I've had enough of God if this is what I have to face. Hasn't God seen others through difficult times? Why won't he see you through difficult times? Whatever those difficulties might be, it's in the difficult times that we prove the sufficiency of God's grace, isn't it? If the famine was a consequence of God's judgment, and it might have been, I'm not sure, what the exact cause of the famine was. But couldn't he have been an agent for change in Bethlehem? Couldn't he have been working towards revival in the nation? Couldn't he have been pleading with his neighbors to turn to the Lord and stop living by their own rules and doing their own thing? I'm not sure it was the right thing to walk away, but that's what he did. Well, he left Bethlehem. What about the crisis in Moab? Elimelech went, it seems, to Moab for a few years. It says he went for a little while, just for a while, verse 1. He probably planned to wait for the famine to blow over and then he would return. But he ended up, they ended up as a family staying 10 years in Moab. In fact, Elimelech never ever left Moab. He died there. And there's a lesson in that, I think. Because we can make the mistake that Elimelech made. The pressures of life are such that we need to make spiritual sacrifices for a while. We cut our attendance at prayer times and Bible studies and we, we, we say to ourselves, well, it's only for a few months until things settle down. But it's been years since we've been there joining the discussions, entering into the prayer times. We drop our uh, all kinds of things and, and we, ex we kind of reason to ourselves, well, it's just until the difficulties blow over and then we'll return. But we never return because sin always takes you deeper than you want to go. And sin always keeps you longer than you want to stay. And Elimelech discovered that. And if you wait for a good time to come back, you'll never find it. Elimelech died in the backslidden plains of Moab. The cost to his family, Elimelech's move to Moab was a strange move if ever there was one. And his family, I think, paid the price. And we could, we could tease that out in a whole host of ways. His sons and their marriage partners and his wife and her friends. Where was she going to find friends among the Moabites? He never thought about any of that. But he cleared off and he died in Moab and he never left it. And there's a lesson in that for us. Let's not pitch our tents in Moab. Let's make sure that we stay among the Lord's people. Well, finally then, there's three funerals. With this, I'll be done. Two quick things about these three funerals. First of all, there's heartache. But secondly, there's hope. First of all, the heartache. What a story of tragedy. The first five verses of Ruth uh, the book of Ruth is. Uh, Naomi's story uh, is one of sadness and unbelievable tragedy. One bombshell after, uh, after another is dropped on her. Firstly, she experiences famine in her own country. Uh, people around her 
were on the bread line, living from one meal to the next, never quite sure where the next meal would come from. That couldn't be easy to face. Only those who've lived in such dire poverty and famine, and those of you who remember what it was like after the war might know a little bit about the hardship that Naomi must have faced. She not only had uh, to live through famine, but then she had the task of settling as a foreigner in a foreign country. That's not easy. You see some of these folks that come from war-torn countries uh, as refugees to our country and the kind of hostility that they face and and the the difficulties that they have trying to settle here in, in, in Scotland and throughout the UK. Not easy. I remember when we moved from the east coast of Scotland to uh, the rural county Cavan in, in the south of Ireland when I was about 12. My mother cried every day. She missed Scotland that much. Every day she cried. And it wasn't easy for Naomi to settle in this strange country amongst these strange people with their strange religious cultures. And then, of course, not only did she have to settle as a foreigner in a foreign land, but uh, when she got there, her husband died. He was only there a short time, and her husband died. Um, Not easy to lose your life's partner, and some of you have had to live through that and work through that. No one will ever know the pain that is felt and the vacuum that is created with the loss of a a life's partner. The empty chair was as painful for Naomi as it was today. Don't think, oh, well, she was back then. It wasn't so bad back then. It was as painful for Naomi as it was for anyone. Painful, painful experience. And then she has to face the death of her two sons. Not only the death of her two sons, but it seems that these two boys lived with constant sickness. Mathlon means weakling or sickly, and Kylon means pining or failing. You would hardly call these two boys sickly and pining if they were the picture of health and, 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 and vibrancy. Surely they were sick almost from their birth, and that's why she gave them these two names. And then, of course, they died. And Naomi is left a stranger in a foreign land trying to cope with her own sorrows and bring comfort to her two daughters-in-law. And it's not an easy scenario. As far as the past is concerned, she's cut off from the past because of immigration, cut off from her support network. The present, she's cut off from the present because she's a stranger in a strange land. And she's cut off from the future because this is a, a culture in which you need sons to provide for you in your old age and her sons are now dead. So she's cut off from the past, she's cut off from the present, and she's cut off from the future. What a catalogue of sorrows she has suffered. Is there anything positive that we could say about Naomi in this set of circumstances? Well, one thing we could say, in her pain and sorrow, we can be absolutely sure that God has never left her sight. He is the God who promises in the law, not just in the prophets, but in the law, that he will be a husband to the widow. And he will be a father to the fatherless. And that the foreigner is, is close to his heart. And we can be absolutely sure, if we can be sure of nothing else, that isn't to say that, isn't to say that it wasn't easy. That, isn't to say, that won't bring her husband back or her two sons back. But it is at least a crumb of comfort in these circumstances that God will not abandon her and God will be with her. Absolutely God will be with her. I remember sitting with a young widow who had two sons and her husband died. Uh, 
he was just a young man, I think in his early 40s, 44, maybe 42, something like that. He died and left her with her two sons. And, uh, and I remember feeling so useless in trying to be her pastor and trying to encourage her. But I clung to the fact that God would need to help her because I couldn't help her. And, and God would need to walk with her through these circumstances because I couldn't do it all the time. God somehow would need to be a father to the fatherless and a husband to the widow. And I think if you were to ask that woman today how she coped through those tragic circumstances, I think she would say, without any shadow of a doubt, God helped me in ways that I never believed possible. Well, here is the final thing, not just the heartache, but the hope. I want to finish on a note of hope. What do we make of all this? A woman stands at the grave of her husband and her, and her two sons in a foreign country. All she has is two daughters-in-law with unfulfilled dreams about their own future. And, and, and perhaps someone will say, well, it's the judgment of God upon them for leaving Bethlehem. Maybe, maybe, but maybe not. Psalm 34, 19 says, many are the afflictions of the righteous. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, and the Lord delivers them out of them all, eventually, in his time, whether in this life or in the life to come. And neither the Old Testament nor the New Testament promises that believers will escape the difficulties of life in a broken world. But as you picture her standing at the grave of her sons, and you think about the sadness, listen, don't think for one minute that God has abandoned this woman. What was true of Joseph is true of Naomi and is true of Ruth. Remember what Joseph said to his brothers? He'd been snatched from his father. He'd been sold as a slave in Egypt. He'd been accused wrongly of making advances towards Potiphar's wife. He had been in prison for years. And at the end of it, his brothers knelt before him and he says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Every single step of it, God meant for good. And what's true of Joseph is true of these two ladies, Naomi and Ruth. God had given Naomi a daughter-in-law that would be more faithful than any daughter or son she would ever or could ever have had. God gave her a daughter-in-law that loved the Lord and would stand by her for the rest of her life. There's a crumb of comfort. There's a little indicator that God hasn't abandoned her. And God will bring to an end the famine that is in Judah so that Naomi will be able to return to her home, to her people, and to the promised land. And God has kept someone from marrying a very eligible bachelor in, in Bethlehem. God has kept him from marrying because he is preserving her, him, for her daughter-in-law Ruth. So that when they get back to Bethlehem, Ruth will be able to marry him and they'll be able to have a son. And that son will be the great grandfather of David, who ultimately will be the father of the savior of the world. She hasn't been deserted. It's not easy. I understand it's not easy. She needs the support of the people who are around her, but she has not been deserted. God has not abandoned her, her or given up on her. And I just want to finish by saying when we can't possibly see what God could be doing and it makes no sense to us, we must trust that he's still in control. So I would be prepared to argue that God was in the move to Moab because Naomi would never have met Ruth 
And Ruth the Moabite would never have been brought to Israel and under the wings of the Lord's salvation. I would be prepared to argue that God was in the loss of her husband and her two sons. Because Naomi and Ruth might never have returned to Bethlehem had those boys remained alive because they probably would never have wanted to go back. Ruth and Naomi needed to return to meet Boaz. And Boaz and Ruth needed to get married if they were ever to have this son called Obed. And if Obed was to have a son called Jesse and Jesse was to have a son called David and David was to have a son called Jesus. So all I'm trying to say to you is I, I, I want you to know that I realize it wasn't easy for her. And uh, I think no one will understand how difficult it was for her unless you've walked this path yourself. But I am absolutely convinced in my heart that God did not abandon her and that God will walk with her and be with her and give her the grace that she needs to face every day and will begin to see how God breaks into the story of tragedy the next time that we meet together.